millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Intercepted. I'm Murtaz Hussain, a reporter at The Intercept. It's been nearly 20 years since the 9-11 terrorist attacks, and the U.S. military continues to be present in the Middle East. We have seen conflict after conflict in this endless war, with one of the most recent episodes being the campaign against ISIS, the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria. ISIS, a militant jihadi group, grew and advanced in 2014 after it declared itself a global caliphate. People from around the world flew in to join the group, among them an American named Russell Dennison. I would go in this blown up, destroyed police building. It was like four stories tall. And I would just watch them from the window uh, to make sure they don't try to come inside from my side. And I would shoot on them like every single night. I would shoot at least like three, four, five bullets just so they know, don't try to enter the city from this side. It was like kind of like Rambo, you know, I was doing my own thing. I was like alone spending hours at night watching the enemy, shooting on them. These kuffar, they knew they could not enter. And uh, I shot on them many times. Russell Dennison was a white American raised Catholic in Pennsylvania who joined ISIS and fought for the organization. And now, a new Audible original podcast documentary from The Intercept and Topic Studios chronicles his life and death. For over six months, Intercept reporter Trevor Aronson spoke with Russell. Trevor received over 30 hours of audio recordings from him, providing a first-hand account of life inside ISIS-controlled territory. The eight-episode podcast, called American ISIS, is out now. Trevor Aronson, welcome to Intercepted. Hey, Maz, thanks for having me. Can you tell us a bit about who is Russell Dennison, and how did you first connect with him? Russell Dennison was a guy who was born in New Hampshire and raised in the suburbs of Pennsylvania, outside Reading, Pennsylvania. You know, what I think is so interesting about the story is just how ordinary his life was. I mean, he he was raised kind of in an all-American family, you know, went to school like all other Americans. Then in his early 20s, kind of drifted and, and didn't really know what to do in life, had kind of a dead-end job, and then ended up getting busted for selling a small amount of marijuana. He was a small-time dealer. And just before going to prison, he he's introduced to Islam, and he converts, meets some people in prison who kind of introduce him more into the religion. And then over time, after his release, he comes to Florida, and he just gets more and more extreme and is eventually finds himself feeling like 
you know, he needed to leave the country and he travels to Syria during the Civil War. And the way I got in contact with him or came into contact with him was that I was investigating an FBI sting case involving a friend of his, a, a man in Florida named Sammy Osmakosh. And Sammy had been wrapped up in, you know, one of these typical FBI terrorism stings where the FBI came to him and provided everything he needed for a plot to bomb a bar in Tampa and shoot up a casino. The FBI, of course, provided all of the weapons and all of the transportation he needed. And I was initially looking at this case, you know, for all of the reasons that I've looked at other terrorism sting cases in the past. And one of the things that Sammy's family had consistently told me was like, look, this red-bearded American guy named Russell Dennison had radicalized him, Sammy, in their terms, and that they suspected he was actually an FBI informant. His job was to groom Sammy. And I often, in the beginning, had that as my working theory. At the same time, I had gotten some emails back in 2014 when I was researching this story that were said to have been from Russell, and he was describing how he was fighting in Syria. And so I, I really had these two ideas that were in conflict. Was Russell an FBI informant, or was he an American who had gone to fight in the Syrian civil war? And so in 2014, when I had this email address for him, I sent him an email trying to engage him and never heard back. And, and I published the story about Sammy Osmakosh, moved on with my work and my life. And then, you know, years later in the summer of 2018, is when suddenly Russell Dennison pops up and contacts me. And it turned out that he wasn't an informant at all. He was he was actually an American who'd gone to Syria and had joined the Islamic State. You know, a lot of your reporting has focused on these cases of entrapment and cases where it is an FBI informant who is sort of uh, the precipitating driver of certain terrorism cases. And it's interesting, in Russell's case, he seems to fit this uh, stereotype in that he's actually... Like, ethnically, he's white. He has a big red beard. What was your first initial take on, you know, who he is or how similar or dissimilar was he to other people you've seen in similar cases like this? The reason that I thought there was credibility to this theory that he was an informant was that he acted like so many of the other FBI informants I've seen in other cases, uh, which is to say that often these these informants will be basically loudmouths and firebrands and, you know, try to encourage people to take strong or even extreme ideological or political positions and then push them to act on it. Like, what are you going to do about it? Like, we have to do something. And in Russell's case, you know, he was like that. And then at the same time would post these YouTube videos. Assalamu alaikum rahmatullah to all the brothers and sisters worldwide. SubhanAllah, we Muslims, alhamdulillah, we on the truth, we have the path to success, to Jannah, we the believers inshallah, we know why we're here, we know who our creator is, we know our purpose, while the kuffar are lost, SubhanAllah, here we are, 2010, about to be 2011. You know, the FBI as a tactic, we'll often use these people as informants to kind of ferret out like-minded people. So they have their informants express these very strong or even extreme views, and then that attracts other people who share those views and, and may be interested in the FBI's view in crossing that line from, you know, sympathizer to actor of some sort, or violent actor of some sort. And so in that way, Russell very much fit this. Uh, right now, I'm in America. And when you live here, and you drive around, and you interact with the people, you see that these people, 
Subhanallah, Astaghfirullah. These people, they have no religion. They have nothing. These people are lost. They don't even know what the word God means. To them, God... And so it turned out that what was happening and what was leading me to believe at the time he was an informant was that the FBI was basically using him as one person the podcast describes as a bug light, which means that, you know, they knew that Russell was attracting the people that they wanted to investigate. So anyone who Russell communicated with, they would then get an interest in, and investigate them. And so in a way, Russell was a bit of an unwitting informant. And all of that kind of comes to bear, I think, in this question that the podcast raises, which is to what extent did the FBI push Russell out of the country? I mean, what Russell describes as his motivations for leaving the United States and going to Syria was this feeling that he couldn't live freely in the United States. He couldn't be the Muslim he wanted to be in the United States because the FBI was after him. And to a certain extent, that's true. You know, they were investigating all of the people around him. The FBI was making, you know, constant visits to Russell, asking him questions, asking about his videos. And so there certainly was this side to it that I think you can question, like, would Russell Dennison have been an ISIS fighter either way? Or, you know, was the FBI's investigation of Russell and his friends kind of that final push that sent him ISIS's way? What was his life trajectory that led him to becoming Muslim and then eventually becoming very radicalized Muslim and supporting ISIS? So Russell was raised Catholic, but talks about how he, you know, never really felt like the religion was for him. As soon as he got kind of got old enough to rebel against his parents, he was no longer going to Catholic church. And I think Russell was this person who, despite his religious views growing up, I think he really wanted to belong to something. And he wanted this identity. And you see that in his teenage years when he becomes interested in hip-hop music. And so that just becomes his identity. And he gets involved as a late teenager in spray paint and tagging buildings and listening to hip-hop music and modifying his car and kind of taking on this identity. He is that for several years. And I think that ultimately just wasn't enough for him. And when he's ultimately arrested for selling marijuana, at the time, right around then, he is working at this FedEx warehouse where he's sorting packages, and he meets this black Muslim who he didn't even know was Muslim. It was just this man that he really admired for his calm demeanor. And he drives him home one night, and they have a conversation, and the guy describes how he's Muslim, and Russell immediately becomes interested in it. And the guy then goes into his house and gives Russell a Quran, which is his first, and Russell just devours it. And, you know, over the course of several days, just reads it every every evening. And that was enough for Russell. He's just like, I'm Muslim at this point. When I opened the Quran, there was light inside the book. And I don't mean light like coming outside of the book, like lighting up the room. No, but I mean, there was light inside the book. All of the pages were lit up. But, you know, he's never really met any other Muslims. He, he hadn't necessarily taken Shahada. And, you know, even in his booking papers, when he accepts a plea deal for his marijuana charge, they ask him if he, you know, had any drugs or alcohol in the last 48 hours. And he mentions that he had some rum, which, of course, as a Muslim, he wouldn't have been able to. And then he, he goes to prison for a short period of time, less than two years. He identifies as a Muslim and, you know, learns about the religion more from prisoners who are Muslim. And then after his release, comes to Florida, where his parents have lived 
Russell's ideas at first were really fueled by, you know, both a fair amount of ignorance about Islam, like not really being around other Muslims except the ones in prison and from what he read in the Quran. And then at the same time, you know, stuff after his release that he was watching online, such as on Wawaliki. Do not seek any permission when it comes to the killing of the Americans. Fighting the devil doesn't need a religious edict, deliberation, prayer or guidance. They are the party of the devil, and fighting them is the personal duty of our times. Anwar Aliki, of course, was the cleric here in the United States who eventually left and became a propagandist for Osama bin Laden. But eventually he meets a man in Florida who is a Salafi Muslim, and he describes Salafism to Russell. Russell engages with that, and then kind of more and more just became attracted to the kind of hardline view of Islam. But he didn't have any ambitions at that time to become a fighter, to get involved in any sort of violence. But what he, what he was interested in was leaving the United States. And so, you know, one of the first steps for that was Russell taking a trip to Egypt and thinking that, you know, It'll be great in the Muslim world. He can live as the Muslim he wants to be. And what what happens to him is ultimately he is then detained by security forces and put in a torture prison. And he is then interrogated by Egyptian officials who ask him questions about that only the FBI would be interested in, like, you know, people that he associated with at mosques in Florida. And this to him was this kind of breakthrough for him, this idea that these kind of people that he viewed as kind of antagonistic toward Islam and enemies of his religion weren't just the Americans in the United States. It was also the Egyptians in Egypt and others in the Muslim world. And I think then you begin to see Russell's extremism after he returns from Egypt really beginning to take shape. You know, all these cases, as you know, are very different. And there's different precipitating factors that lead people sometimes to join these groups and so forth. But in Russell's case, the perception I get from reading about him and the, hearing you talk about him and listening to the podcast is that in his own way, he was actually quite educated in the sense that he was very self-motivated and self-educated to learn about this issue. It makes me wonder, does the fact that he ended up eventually joining ISIS and uh, leaving the country and so forth, was it some an outlet for like a psychological issue or like a desire to change the world in some way you thought was better? Or was it uh, because of pressure by the authorities here? Or was it a combination of the three? How do you see it getting to know him so well? It's a huge topic, this idea of like what drives people like Russell to groups like ISIS. And I think in Russell's case, as I think it's the case generally, is that it's really hard to kind of create a formula. That there are so many drivers in place that it really is kind of unique to each person why they make this really um, extreme decision to join a group like ISIS. You know, people will, will listen to Russell and maybe not come to the conclusion that he's a very smart guy based on some of the things he says. And I don't think that's the case. I actually think he's a pretty smart guy. I think, you know, Russell did a good job of educating himself as best he could about Islam and and was a voracious reader. I, I think where Russell had faults is that he had a bit of a tunnel vision. Like, he would just read and study about the things that he wanted to study and really didn't understand the world as well as I think a lot of people do. You know, an example of this is Russell having such a firm understanding of Islam as he views it, but at the same time, you know, he goes to Beirut in Lebanon, and what he's expecting is this really pious city of worshiping Muslims, and instead he sees, you know, what is in Beirut, right? A very modern city and, you know, women wearing high heels and miniskirts and, you know, something that, you know, is more comparable to Miami Beach even, and that was something that was just, like, so surprising to Russell. Russell's drivers were really, I think, two things. I mean, I think one 
I think Russell had trouble fitting into American life in general. You know, he had a, in his early 20s, he was arrested for dealing marijuana. So he's basically a felon. Then he has trouble kind of finding a good job as a result, as many ex-convicts do in the United States. You know, doesn't have a whole lot of social luck, you know, doesn't have a lot of friends. And so I think, you know, Russell was really dissatisfied with this life. A lot of people in America are dissatisfied with the life they have. And in Russell's case, it's coupled by the fact that he then kind of really identifies with this kind of extreme brand of of Islam and begins to think that there is this place he can go where there are others like him and that, you know, he can live this better life if he can just find that place. You know, he really set off to the Middle East initially just thinking that he was going to find this kind of place where they're, all the Muslims are just like him and share his his viewpoints. And so he, he goes to Iraq, he goes to Egypt, he goes to Beirut, and he finds that the, you know, the Muslims that he was searching for are not there. And then ultimately, that's what drives him to cross into Syria during the Civil War, this belief that the Muslim society that he was hoping to find— he hasn't found it, and maybe he's going to find it amidst the civil war in Syria. I was asked to work in a group uh, that plans on making attacks outside the Islamic State uh, to help them and advise them to prepare an attack inside America or in France or in Britain. And this I declined uh, because in reality I didn't want anything to do with this. I wanted to keep my jihad personal in the lands I was in and uh, let things uh, happen naturally. I didn't want to involve myself in any real uh, acts of terror. Can you tell me a bit about your first correspondence with Russell and how that conversation went? I got this anonymous email with this WhatsApp number, and it just said, I think I have a story you might be interested in. And the the message I received back when I sent a message just saying, hey, you know, this is Trevor Aronson responding to your email, was, I believe the exact words were, do you remember Sammy Osmakosh? And I said, yes. The next question was, do you know who I am now? And, you know, I knew it was Russell. I mean, I knew Russell was the only be the only person I would have tried to contact in the past who would ask a question like that. And so I, I said, Denison? And he said, yes, that's correct. And that's what started our correspondence. We, we started communicating through WhatsApp exclusively. That was Russell's idea. And the way that we ultimately communicated was through voice memos. At the time Russell contacted me, ISIS's de facto capital, Raqqa, had, had already fallen. And so he and a lot of the other ISIS fighters were in Deir Azor. The infrastructure there isn't great. So we devised this system to communicate where he would record his messages to me at night when he was alone and he had time. And then when he would go to an internet hotspot, those messages would then be uploaded. And so every every morning or so, I would usually wake up at the time to you know 30 or 40 voice memos varying in length from 30 seconds to, you know, four or five minutes. And that became our system. And then because internet was a challenge for him, I would then listen to the recordings and then rather than send voice memos, I would write questions back and he would then respond. And so it became this kind of confessional quality that like every evening, Russell would sit down after his wife and children were asleep and record these messages to me. And what we had devised as a, as a basic system was that I wanted him to tell me about his life, you know, from the United States through to his time in the present as he was recording in, in ISIS-controlled Syria. When I left Florida, and I remember, like, uh, I hugged my father, and I hugged and kissed my mother. Man, I knew that I would never see them again. And it's very sad, you know. I had to let them go. 
And this is the sacrifice that we do for this religion. You know, this guy is what has been characterized as, you know, evil, right? Like an ISIS fighter. And yet, like, I'm hearing these recordings and I'm struck by the charisma in his voice. I'm struck by kind of his humanity and and telling me his stories and and sharing this with me. And so one of the reasons it works well as a podcast is that Russell is able to tell his story in a really effective way that brings you into it, makes you feel like you're there. Yeah, that's actually something I was very curious about because at the time that you're having these conversations with Russell, ISIS was one of the biggest news stories in the world. And, you know, there was a lot of curiosity and fear and, uh, you know, anger about their actions and what was going on. And you had a very, very unique view into ISIS because you actually were speaking to a member of ISIS at the time. And he was in the group talking to you from their controlled territories. How did you feel having this relationship with him? What did you take away from knowing him? It was really engaging in the sense that I felt like I had this window into this world that few other people, other journalists had, right? Which is that, you know, he's in ISIS at that moment and daily communicating with me with what life is like there and what's happening within the group. And I just didn't know of anyone, any journalist who really had that type of access. And the reason it was at the same time strange was that it was this relationship that I really couldn't talk about with anyone. You know, Russell was concerned that any of the information that he had provided, unless it was kind of explicit, you know, that it was okay to release, would potentially put him in harm's way, either with the ISIS security forces, because he was at times very critical of ISIS, or with the U.S. government. Perhaps he would be targeted uh, for or killing by the U.S. government was his concern. And so it was strange, because I felt like you know, we were having this very unique relationship where, you know, he was in a very difficult position. I mean, he's, he's literally in a war zone. He's with his small family and every day is a struggle for life. And here I am in the comfortable United States getting his messages and, and hearing about this. I saw many brothers from us killed and I've seen it with my own eyes. I've seen these brothers die and die laughing. I've seen them die with the biggest smile and and look so beautiful in the state of death. I was really his only connection outside of Syria. And so it, it really created this unique relationship. I very much viewed it as I am the journalist and he is the subject. But I think for him, toward the end of our communications, he began to realize that he was very likely to die and die soon. And so he just kind of you know, was honest with me in his recordings in a way that I think was was quite extraordinary. And I'll try not to leave anything out and explain everything to the best of my ability, uh, like I usually try to do. And uh, after that, then we'll just see what's the next uh, next thing uh, I should uh, focus on talking about. But that's going to be my priority is try to finish that that chapter, this last chapter, and get us caught up to where we are now, inshallah. And that itself was a weird thing to have to deal with, that knowing the person I'm talking to is in all likelihood going to die, you know, fairly soon. It was interesting to me to, like, have the human side of the perceived enemy. You know, we live in this world now where we're quick to dehumanize the people that we are fighting, whether it's political battles or very real battles with with enemies, with tanks and bombs. You know, that's what I kind of saw in Russell's story was this ability to see, you know, this group and these people that we have labeled enemies and which have done horrible things to to civilians and Americans and many others. But who are these people? And Russell's 
confessional tapes, so to speak, you know, gave me a window into that, into like into the humanity that's even there for these people that I think we've come to term rightly as as enemies of ours. What did, did you learn about the people who join ISIS? Like, what can we draw from your very unique and valuable relationship with Russell to say about you know why why this phenomenon took place, where tens of thousands of people from all over the world end up traveling to join this group, which most of us were very repelled by. It's believed that thousands of fighters, tens of thousands of fighters from all over the world came to join ISIS. Those reasons varied, obviously. But I think one of the unifying reasons for all of them was the feeling that the places they lived were no longer welcoming to the religion that they wanted to practice, that that they felt their religion and their way of life was under attack, and that they could come to Syria or to Iraq and join ISIS and be part of this movement. And I also think that they really felt, or at least at least through Russell's eyes, that these people really felt that they were building something consequential, that they were building the society where they could finally be free and they could live as, as Muslims as they want to live. And I think the way ISIS has been covered in the Western media as, as a whole, I think, has really played up and, and ISIS wanted this, you know, the grotesque brutality of the group, you know, whether it's the propaganda videos of, you know, murdering civilians and journalists or torturing people who they believed were spies or were gay or, or what have you. And, you know, those things happened and they were horrific, right? But not everyone who joined ISIS necessarily did those things or agreed 100% with what it was doing. I think in Russell's view, you know, Russell, as he describes, you know, never came to Syria to fight the United States. He didn't want to get involved in attacks in the United States. And he described his not being alone in this, that there were people who came there and truly believed that they were building this state where Muslims could be free and that they were freeing the Iraqis and the the Syrians from oppressive governments that were antagonistic to Islam. The U.S. maintains a dominant control globally just about In reality, we are no threat to the West. Yes, uh, if you look at the Islamic State videos and many of their fighting videos and many things that people say they threaten the West, like this and that, this is a personal thing. Many of the brothers here, we are not here to fight America. We didn't come here to fight America. Feeling that way requires Russell and others to dance around and avoid responsibility for some of the really horrific things that ISIS did. You know, inside the ISIS caliphate, there was a functioning society that people like Russell and others who'd come from all over the world were trying to build. To a certain extent, it's, you know, if you put yourself in their shoes to the extent that you say like, okay, like, you know, you're some 20 or 30 some year old who's come from a country where you really felt marginalized or a society where you really felt marginalized. And then you arrive in Raqqa and you're part of this, you're building this. And I think it gave someone like Russell, this really quick identity to put themselves in a position where they're having a consequential impact on the world. And to Russell's credit, to a certain extent, that's true, right? Like, would anyone have told Russell's story had he stayed in the United States and not done these things? Like, in the end, he did lead a a fairly extraordinary life, so extraordinary that, you know, we're talking about it now. That's what some of these people really wanted, was this feeling like they wanted to make a difference in this this world, very much through the prism of, you know, fighting for the, the freedom to practice their religion. Some time ago, there was a big controversy over the New York Times podcast, Caliphate, which was similarly based on an ISIS volunteer, but 
with later investigation turned out to have not actually been a volunteer in the group. Can you tell us a bit about how the verification process you went through with Russell or how, you know, this case in many ways, because Russell actually got killed in Syria in the end, sort of differed throughout your time of talking to him than what took place with the New York Times version of reporting? When I started communicating with Russell and when I started researching him more, you know, I knew that whatever form of journalism this would take, whether it was a story or a book or a podcast or what have you, you know, the verification process would really be the critical piece. Like, how do we know this is really Russell Dennison? How do we know he's really in Syria? And how do we know he's really with ISIS? Because there have certainly, as in the case of Caliphate, been examples of people hoaxing journalists and telling them stories that aren't true. Caliphate hadn't collapsed when I was first doing this, but I knew that verification and authentication was critical. And then Ultimately, when it was discovered that the Canadian authorities had arrested the primary subject of the New York Times podcast for what they term a terrorist hoax, it was this reminder to me of like how bad it could be if I slipped up as a journalist and trusted Russell's story too much. You know, I can say definitively, Russell Dennison was an American who joined ISIS. And I say that not because he told me that and we had like one corroborating piece of information. No, we had like multiple, multiple sources. And so what ended up happening while he was alive, I had devised a number of tests for him to get him to confirm to me that, that he was who he said he was. Fortunately, I had access to parts of his FBI file, and that FBI file included narrative descriptions of interviews that he had with FBI agents while he was in Florida. And so he described in detail what happened in those FBI interviews, and those matched exactly with what was in the FBI file, which is not something that Russell or the public at all would have had access to. It's a very limited number of people have access to this. Um, I had him send, you know, pictures of his passport, pictures of his his ISIS ID card, and then I had him give me names of people he knew. After his death, I was able to track down people in Florida. I was able to track down someone he knew in Michigan who had traveled with him in Iraq. You know, all of these people were able to confirm specific parts of of Russell's story. In addition to that, when Russell was communicating with me at the end of 2018 and the beginning of 2019, the U.S.-led coalition was bombing the area of Deir Azor where Russell and his family were. And when Russell was making these recordings to me, he would accidentally at times record some of these bombings that he was listening to. So it was this really dramatic audio of these bombings behind him. I thought, you know, I'm in. I'll check it out. I'll give it a shot and I'll do it. Nothing else is working out for me. Not that I'm giving up. You hear this? You see, this is major American airstrikes. When I was in this city, there was sometimes Oh, Allah Akbar. And he would then, at the time, send me information about what was targeted. He would send me pictures from the ground. I was reporting for The Intercept on some of those bombings. And so we had a number of sources for the information we were providing. And one of those sources I can reveal now was Russell. So Russell was communicating with me at that time, and he'd agreed to let me use this information that he was sending me about the bombings. And so among the information that he'd sent me was, you know, the fact that a hospital had been bombed in Deir Ezzor and other specific targets. And the Department of Defense later verified and confirmed that, indeed, they had targeted the hospital that bombed this hospital and other targets that Russell had told me about. And so in addition to all of the corroborating evidence that I had about Russell being in ISIS, I also had weeks of experience of him providing me in real time 
information from the ground that only an ISIS fighter could have provided. Yes, this is the worst night for airstrikes in this neighborhood I'm in. This is the worst night. Today, maybe like all the families, they left. And it's only like military here now. And I'm here with my family. And they are, there are some crazy airstrikes tonight. So I hope that me and my family will live through this night. You know, uh, but this is our life. When we were working on this project, you know, obviously there was this concern, like, how do we know it's him and how do we avoid a situation like the New York Times where it just collapses, right? This isn't a story where we took Russell's word for it. I mean, we, we did our best to verify all aspects of his story and interrogate it in the most intense way possible. And, you know, throughout the podcast, I I try to reveal as transparently as possible how we confirmed what we confirmed, or if there's an instance where it was just an unconfirmable thing that Russell was telling us something that happened, say, in a specific conflict or a specific moment where, like, there's no way to otherwise verify that. We tried to be very transparent, you know, about that with the listener. Under the Trump administration, you know, the caliphate that he went to build was destroyed and, uh, you know, victory was declared by the U.S. in this conflict. But you know, what you learned about the motivations of Russell and this phenomenon as a whole, do you think this conflict is actually over or is it in a lull or is it still too early to say? I don't think it's over. I think we're, we're entering a new and different phase, you know, particularly with the troop withdrawal in Afghanistan. And it's hard to know what exactly will happen. But I think the idea that the conflicts that have existed in that part of the world, in, in large part because of you know U.S. intervention and U.S. wars there, I think are going to continue. One of the things that came out of Russell's story that I think is important is this idea that when the U.S. coalition was trying to dislodge ISIS from the final territory that it controlled in eastern Syria, it was backed by Kurdish rebels on the ground as the ground force. And that ground force was outmatched by the ground force of ISIS. And so they couldn't directly engage on the ground because the Kurds would have most likely uh, been defeated. And so what the U.S. coalition did was they basically carpet bombed a lot of the Deir Ezzor province as they were targeting ISIS fighters and so killed civilians as well. And I think, you know, one of the things that Russell told me that I thought was really remarkable for, for its truth, he'd lived through one night of this bombing campaign and he was upset and scared, you know, and you could hear that in his voice. And he's outside and he basically says, I'm not sure I'm how much longer I'm going to live. ISIS may not be here tomorrow, but the people who live through this, who see these dead bodies and this destruction, they will remember and they will know who did this, right? And to me, what that meant was just this idea that, yeah, like ISIS probably isn't going to last forever, but that doesn't mean that we're not going to have blowback from the type of violence that we drop on a place like Deir Azur, that there are these young men who will, you know, see their sisters and their brothers and their fathers die, and they may likely blame the United States. And, and what comes of that, right? All of this is cyclical. I mean, if you look at the rise of ISIS and you can point to the the U.S. brutality in Iraq and, and the unjustified war there, you know, what will be the next iteration of ISIS, because I think, yeah, there will be other groups like it, and they will be responding to the actions that the U.S. took. And, and I think that's the, in the longer term, you know, what the U.S. needs to worry about. And, you know, the irony is that you, we can say this, people have been saying this for, for decades, right? This is kind of the story of the United States where, you know, we get involved where we probably shouldn't, and we've divorced ourselves, I think, to a certain extent 
from the brutalities of war and the violence that the U.S. is able to perpetrate on others. You know, this idea that, you know, these wars happen through drones and smart bombs and they're so far away from us and, you know, we don't have to see how awful it is. And if anything, I think what Russell's recordings during that time did was provide this window into what the United States was doing. And and granted, the United States in trying to dislodge ISIS was a good thing. I'm not arguing that they shouldn't have been doing that. But I think where the concern is, is that the tactics we use, the the violence and the destruction that we cause, are we going to inspire the next generation of people that will want to harm the United States? And, you know, what Russell would argue, you know, standing there, having lived through a bomb, night of bombing, is that, yeah, that's exactly what happened. You know, he may no longer be on this earth and ISIS may no longer be here, but there are people who have lived through this bombing campaign who will remember and they're going to do something about it. Trevor, thanks for coming on Intercepted and sharing this incredible story. Of course. Thanks for having me. Trevor Aronson is an investigative reporter for The Intercept. You can hear the entire American ISIS series on Audible at audible.com slash American ISIS. And that does it for this episode of Intercepted. You can follow us on Twitter at Intercepted and on Instagram at Intercepted Podcast. Intercepted is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our lead producer is Jack Dizadoro. Supervising producer is Laura Flynn. Betsy Reed is editor-in-chief of The Intercept. Rick Kwan mixed our show. Our theme music, as always, was composed by DJ Spooky. Until next time, I'm Murtaza Hossein. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big money on plant protection supplies. Now at Menards. Defend your garden with Triazicide Insect Killer. Its fast-acting formula protects lawns, vegetables, and many other plants. It kills more than 260 insects by contact, above and below ground. Choose from ready-to-spray, concentrate, or granular. Save big money on Triazicide Insect Killer at Menards. And check out our weekly flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save 